It's about that time. Hope everyone enjoyed lunch. My name is Trevor Burris. I'm a research fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Studies and the managing editor of the Cato Supreme Court Review. This is the sixth review I have worked on. I had to check, go back and check that I did get acknowledgments in the one when I was an intern. Uh, and then uh, been the managing editor for two of those, so I'm not going to catch up with Ilya, uh, but six is pretty good. I actually have a theme for this panel. I usually get the potpourri panel. Uh, but this is actually a healthcare theme, which is good because I got heavily involved with healthcare policy right out of law school when I got involved with the first case challenging the Affordable Care Act on constitutional grounds. And of course, thanks to the Chief Justice's saving construction of the individual mandate, we are left with this law. <clears throat> and uh, it is, in the words of Josh Blackman's forthcoming book, slowly or maybe quickly unraveling. We will discuss some of those implications today in terms of the morality of enforcing people to pay for things that they may not want to pay for and some future litigation coming up and we'll just add some abortion to the mix uh, for fun. And I'm very grateful to have uh, Liz Foley here because when we were discussing putting together a review, we knew we could not ignore the abortion case, but if anyone knows anything about libertarians, we don't like to talk about abortion. We don't like to talk about it at Cato in particular. We don't really have, there's a split on abortion, so we wanted someone to cover the case, not having to take a position on the pro-life or pro-choice side, and Liz did a very fine job with that. I will give brief introductions to our speakers. Uh, the rest of their bios, their extensive and impressive bios, are in your packet. So first up will be Elizabeth Price Foley. She is a professor of law at Florida International University College of Law and of counsel to the Washington office of Baker Hostetler where she practices constitutional appellate and drug law. She's the author of Liberty for All, Reclaiming Individual Privacy in a New Era of Public Morality, The Law of Life and Death, and The Tea Party, Three Principles. She's a frequent contributor to many uh, esteemed papers, and she's been published extensively, including this, this edition of the Cato Supreme Court Review. She was formerly the Institute of Justice Chair for Constitutional Litigation, during which time she served as the Executive Director of IJ's Florida Chapter. She's summa cum laude graduate of the University of Tennessee, and where she was the articles editor of the Tennessee Law Review. She has a BA in History from Emory and an LLM from Harvard Law School. Please welcome Elizabeth Price Foley. Thanks so much, Trevor. I appreciate that introduction. Uh, thanks also to the Cato Institute for sponsoring the symposium and, and for inviting me to speak today. Uh, I am going to try to talk about this abortion case in sort of a non-abortion way, if that's possible. Um, but I, I think it's a good vehicle for making some broader points that I've been thinking about for a long time. Um, like Alice in Wonderland, right, where things got curiouser and curiouser, as Alice went along, uh, I think the Supreme Court's abortion jurisprudence is, is very much like that. Uh, from 1973 in Roe versus Wade to today, uh, span of what is that, 43 years, I guess? I had to look at my notes because I can't do the math off the top of my head. In 43 years, we've gone from strict scrutiny in Roe versus Wade to undue burden, which was the new standard articulated in Casey, to what I like to call uh, uh, undue burden plus, with the plus meaning there's a, an added dose of legislative deference. That was in Gonzalez versus Carhartt. Uh, to now whole woman's health, which was decided this term, 
Uh, and I call that undue burden minus because they took away the deference that they had given before. Um, so I'm, talk I'm here to talk to you about whole woman's health in particular, but I am going to talk about it in a broader context. And in particular, I want to explore the meaning uh, and the, the possibilities that are posed by uh, the court's sort of idiosyncratic approach to standards of judicial review in constitutional rights cases. Uh, so it's not just about abortion. First, let me talk about whole woman's health, because for those of you who aren't familiar with the case, it's a little background is good. It's a 5-3 decision of the court. It was uh, penned by Justice Breyer. Uh, Justice Kennedy, who's our current center of the court, uh, decided to join sort of the liberal wing of the court in uh, reaching the majority opinion. And what they did in the court was they invalidated two provisions of a Texas law. It's called HB2. Uh, and uh, there's two different aspects here. One provision of the law that they invalidated uh, was called the admitting privileges pr uh, provision. And it did kind of what it sounds like it did. It required uh, doctors that perform abortion to first have admitting privileges uh, at a nearby hospital. Uh, I think they had to have them within 30 miles of where the abortion was provided. Um, the second provision that they struck down was the so-called surgical center requirement. Uh, and this provision basically required all abortion facilities to meet the same standards under Texas law as ambulatory surgery facilities. But to reach the, the merits on these two provisions of law to strike them down, the, the court sort of first had to engage in some, uh, I'll be nice about it, creative contortions uh, uh, on the law of res judicata or claim preclusion. Uh, it's a sort of an arcane procedural technical thing that geeks like me who also teach civil procedure uh, kind of get into. Um, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because I think there's a lot more interesting aspects of the case, and it is arcane, so why bother? Um, but uh, just so you know, the court did have to engage in contortions. It went out of its way uh, to reach the merits uh, of this particular case. And uh, it's it weird because this was really the second lawsuit. Uh, the first lawsuit was basically brought by the same group of abortion providers as brought the case that ultimately reached the Supreme Court. Uh, but those abortion providers that had brought the first lawsuit lost uh, their first lawsuit. And normally, this doctrine of claim preclusion would say you don't get a second bite of the apple like that. You don't get to relitigate something you've already litigated. Uh, but once the Supreme Court sort of cleared that pesky doctrine out of the way, uh, it proceeded to apply its infamous sort of sui generis uh, undue burden standard of review that was first discovered and articulated in that Casey opinion. But the, the undue burden standard that we're seeing in uh, Whole Woman's Health is not the same undue burden standard uh, we saw in Casey, and it certainly is not the same undue burden standard uh, we saw in the 2007 Gonzalez versus Carhartt decision from the court. Uh, and so I want to take a, a brief sort of stroll down memory lane and talk to you a moment about Gonzalez versus Carhartt. This was a decision, again, from 2007 where the court uh, decided to uh, uphold a federal law that banned so-called partial birth abortion. Uh, it's called partial birth abortion because it's a type of abortion that requires that the fetus be delivered into the birth canal before it's dismembered. And, of course, if you know anything about it or read the newspaper reports about partial birth abortion, you know, it, it, it has a particularly gruesome aspect to it. And so it was the one thing Congress could pass at the federal level is to ban completely 
uh, this one procedure of partial birth abortion. And so what the court did here was it upheld this complete ban on an abortion procedure, despite the fact that there is a constitutional right to abortion. Uh, and it did so despite the fact that the law didn't contain an exception for the health of the mother. And previous decisions of the court had suggested that you, you constitutionally had to have an exception for the health and, the, and or the life of the mother. So Congress anticipated that its failure to include an exception for the health of the mother was going to probably cause it some problems with the court. So it tried to sort of ward off these problems by making extensive findings of fact in the act itself. And specifically, they made findings of fact that there was a, a medical consensus that partial birth abortion was never necessary for the health of the mother. And the court quibbled a little bit whether that was actually a fact that was rationally found or not, but it decided to defer uh, to uh, the, the Congress on that ultimately. In fact, the, the Gonzalez court concluded that deference to the legislative uh, branches, fat findings of fact, on, a, on an abortion law where there's quote unquote medical uncertainty as to whether or not the law will protect maternal health uh, is, is an appropriate thing for a court to do. I'll give you a quote uh, from Gonzalez. Quote, considerations of marginal safety including the balance of risks, are within the legislative competence when the regulation is rational and in pursuit of legitimate ends. Now, lawyers speak, we hear that, and that, you know, that just sends off signals. It's rational basis review, rational basis review. There's deference going on suddenly in an abortion case. So that was a really radical moment for a lot of people. And with that particular statement, the Gonzalez course sort of added a twist to the undue burden standard. They still gave lip service to the undue burden standard, but they added this dose of deference to the legislature on the issue of maternal health and safety. So the majority opinion in, in Whole Woman's Health, the case that was decided this term, has changed that understanding from Gonzalez completely. Uh, and I think at this point it's fair to say that Gonzalez is probably limited uh, to its own unique set of facts in light of Whole Women's Health. So Whole Women's Health majority, what it did is it explicitly rejected the notion that legislatures and not courts should resolve questions of medical uncertainty. The court said there's no room for rational basis review in abortion cases because abortion is a constitutionally protected personal right and rational basis review is something we sort of set aside and we only use for uh, sort of disfavored rights, economic rights is what the court specifically referred to. So the court made a feeble attempt to sort of explain away the Gonzalez court's uh, dose of deference that it had given to the Partial Birth Abortion Act. And it said that the Texas uh, law, HB2, wasn't entitled to that deference because the Texas legislature had committed the sin of not providing any specific findings of fact about uh, maternal health and safety. So it decided that what it was going to do instead is not give any deference to Texas's in-court articulations of the public health and safety purposes behind that law, the admitting privileges provision, the surgical center provision, but it was instead going to give deference to the district court's findings of fact. And so the district court in Whole Women's Health 
whole woman's health, in applying this undue burden standard, decided not only to consider Texas, whether the Texas law placed a substantial obstacle on the path of a woman who wants to seek an abortion, but it went an extra step and it said, I'm also going to consider as the trial judge here whether or not the Texas law actually benefits any woman in any health or safety kind of way. So the Supreme Court explicitly endorsed this extra step of the district court to sort of weigh the benefits of a law to maternal health and safety against the burdens or the substantial obstacle that the law would place in the path of a woman seeking an abortion. That alone, the consideration of benefits in addition to burden, is, is a sea change. It's 180 degrees from Gonzalez versus Carhartt. So this new version of the undue burden standard that we have is no longer really about burdens at all. It's some form of a balancing test. And like all balancing tests, I think what it's going to do is give vast power to district court judges who are now going to receive appellate court deference on their findings of fact regarding not only the burdens of an abortion law, but also its benefits. Now, this new undue burden minus standard, as I like to think of it, uh, makes Justice Scalia's dissent in Casey, I think, appear particularly prescient. Uh, and I think it also highlights for us sort of why Justice Scalia's passing is going to be so consequential in constitutional cases. Uh, in his Casey dissent, Scalia warned about the newly minted plurality undue burden standard. Uh, and I'll give you a quote from Scalia's dissent. He said, quote, the inherently standardless nature of this inquiry invites the district judge to give effect to his personal preference about abortion. By finding and relying upon the right facts, he can invalidate, it would seem, almost any abortion restriction that strikes him as undue, end quote. Now, the standardless nature, nature of the Supreme Court's undue burden standard isn't the end of the story here, right? Justice Scalia was on to something, but this is just the beginning. Because the larger story here, I think, is the standardless nature of the court's sort of ever-shifting, what I call kaleidoscopic uh, review of constitutional rights generally. We have three tiers, of course, of judicial scrutiny that we normally apply in constitutional cases. There's strict scrutiny, there's intermediate scrutiny, and there's rational basis review. And we can legitimately criticize that, that ab initio decision as to which level of review should attach to which constitutional right. It's all coming from the Supreme Court's 1938 decision in Caroline Products, where they have this famous footnote four, where if you went to law school, everybody, you can go to any cocktail party and talk to a lawyer and say, hey, what do you think about footnote four? And they all know what you're talking about. Um, I know it's really geeky, but um, this, is, this is a footnote that basically set the stage for the court's bifurcation of constitutional rights, whereby on the one hand, certain preferred personal rights got heightened scrutiny, and certain sort of disfavored, redheaded step-cousin uh, rights got uh, rational basis review. And of course, the difference is there's one set is personal rights that are entitled to some judicial respect, and the others are called economic rights, and they're not entitled to judicial respect. Now, this footnote was just dicta. 
It wasn't even part of the holding of the case. It was dicta in a four-person majority opinion because a couple of justices had recused themselves from the consideration of the case. But its impact, nonetheless, has been absolutely enormous on constitutional law. It's led a generation of lawyers to accept that there's some meaningful distinction between economic rights on the one hand and non-economic rights on the other hand. And that's kind of fascinating in and of itself because the history of this country and certainly the political philosophy that motivated the founding generation suggests otherwise. It'd be hard to imagine, really, a more personal, important, dare I say, fundamental right than the right to contract or the right to pursue a lawful occupation of your own choosing. And yet these rights, these rights that are absolutely essential to our concept of liberty and to our pursuit of happiness have been accepted as disfavored economic rights since the New Deal era. And so laws that impact them are, without fail, now given rubber stamp, what I call rubber stamp, rational basis review, uh, exemplified in a case called Williamson versus Lee Optical. But even if one disagrees with the court's personal versus economic rights bifurcation, it at least has provided some rough guidance to judges as to what mindset they should have when they approach a constitutional rights case. So I'll give it some credit. It makes the judges sort of pull out the case and right away say, okay, am I gonna get out my big rubber stamp? Or am I gonna keep that rubber stamp in the drawer and you know, give this case some real scrutiny? And of course these Tiers of scrutiny don't stop with this bifurcation, this economic versus non-economic bifurcation, because we do have further refinement that goes on and it says, okay, even if this, this is a personal rights case rather than an economics rights case, um, we're gonna now try to figure out which of the personal rights are important enough to be called fundamental and which ones don't quite qualify for that shibboleth. And the dividing line between fundamental and non-fundamental rights, at least until recently, has had something to do with our nation's history and tradition. So for example, uh, a constitutional right to physician-assisted suicide, the court decided that case in Washington v. Glucksburg, and, and said, look, there's not a, a history or a legal tradition uh, in Anglo-American law of recognizing a right to suicide with the assistance of a third party. So they denied that right as fundamental, applied rational basis review, and the law sailed on through. The same thing happened in the court's first foray into uh, constitutional assessment of anti-sodomy laws. In Bowers versus Hardwick, the court's uh, first decision, which I think was around 1985, um, they rejected uh, an asserted constitutional right to sodomy because they said, look, for a long time we prohibited sodomy, go away, it's the end of the story, there's a rational basis for it, and uh, we're done. But increasingly over the last 20 years or so, the level of judicial scrutiny that's been applied in any particular case has sort of become unmoored, not only from the constitutional text, which is bad enough, but it's become unmoored from our constitutional history and our historical uh, inheritance. So in Lawrence versus Texas, for example, the court uh, uh, reversed course, <clears throat> excuse me, on Bowers versus Hardwick, and in fact, uh, invalidated a Texas anti-homosexual sodomy law. 
And in order to reach that conclusion and reverse Bowers, the Lawrence Court didn't purport to alter the applicable standard of review, which was rational basis review, but instead gave rational basis some sort of bite right, that you normally don't feel. That's why we sort of refer to his rational basis with bite. And the same unusual bite was evident uh, just a few years later in the court's equal protection case called Romer versus Evans. So suddenly we started seeing rational basis review with some sort of bite, but it wasn't really intermediate scrutiny and it wasn't really strict scrutiny either. Now, the Supreme Court's recent decision uh, in validating uh, bans on gay marriage, the Obergefell, case that they just decided is further illustrating that this present court uh, is happy to disregard our nation's history and tradition in its analysis because it didn't assign any weight uh, to the history that defined a marriage as one man, one woman. Now, don't get me wrong, okay? I'm not suggesting I disagree with the outcome of either Lawrence or Obergefell. I actually don't. But I will say this, the court's analytical structure in both of those cases was undoubtedly unique, and neither decision attributed much significance uh, to our nation's history and tradition. So the difficulty, I think, that we're presented with sort of moving forward is that we as lawyers and as ordinary citizens can no longer I think predict with any degree of accuracy which personal rights are going to be classified as fundamental and hence uh, deserving of strict scrutiny by the court and which are going to be classified as sort of generic regular old liberty interests which are going to be relegated to rubber stamp rational basis review. And even if it is a generic sort of personal, uh, uh, excuse me, liberty interest, you look at Lawrence and you look at Romer, and that suggests that even some personal liberty interests that don't qualify as fundamental rights might not get actual rubber stamp rational basis review. It'll be that special thing where it's rational basis review with bite. But we can't really predict when it's going to have bite and when it's not going to have bite. The same problem of unpredictability is occurring in the court's equal protection jurisprudence as evidenced not only by Romer, but the affirmative action cases. So while the court gives lip service to strict scrutiny in the affirmative action cases, because affirmative action, is, of course, involves a race-conscious, race-based classification by government, the court's decision in recent cases such as Grutter and recent, more recently Fisher, too, uh, indicate that the version of strict scrutiny that's being applied in affirmative action cases isn't really all that strict because they're deferring to the legislators, uh, not the legislators, the university's uh, own articulation of why it's important uh, that they carry out or achieve the goal of diversity in certain ways. And this brings me back to whole women's health, believe it or not. Um, the court's sort of customized level of review that was specifically invented for abortion cases, this undue burden standard, has itself proven to be uh, unpredictable, unstable. That's not good for the rule of law, even assuming that one can accept that abortion is sort of just different uh, from all other personal constitutional rights and deserving, therefore, of its own special level of judicial review, that standard that the court has articulated, undue burden, hasn't provided any stability or predictability in this area of the law. 
the increasing unpredictability in the court's standards of reviews affects all types of constitutional rights cases. And it should alarm anybody who cares about preserving the rule of law more than achieving certain outcomes. While standards of review are certainly subject to criticism as made up doctrines, they are designed to provide some consistency across cases. When they no longer serve that key function, both lawyers and ordinary Americans, I think, are going to start to believe that judges aren't really judges at all, but just politicians in robes. Uh, when we reach that point, I think, as a society, we're going to have reached the point uh, where, unfortunately, we're really no longer uh, a country of laws, but, in fact, of men. Uh, and I think that's obviously unfortunate. Thank you for your attention and time. Thank you, Liz. I actually recently found out that um, Oklahoma prohibited tattoo parlors until 2006, but then they allowed them back in. But tattoo artists have onerous restrictions on having different medical qualifications now. And it made me think of the whole women's health case, actually, how that, how that would play out. Uh, our next speaker will be Mark L. Rienzi, <clears throat> is an associate professor at Catholic University of America, Columbus School of Law, where he teaches con law, religious liberty, torts, and evidence. He has been published in prodigious, prodigious journals, including prestigious journals, including the Harvard Law Review, the Fordham Law Review, and others. Before joining Catholic, he served as counsel in the Supreme Court Appellate Practice Group at Wilmer Hale, and he served as a law clerk to Judge Stephen F. Williams on the D.C. Circuit. He was an editor of Harvard Law Review, where he received his J.D. Mark. Thanks, Trevor, and thanks to the Cato Institute for having me here uh, at what is always a, a fun and interesting uh, Const Constitution Day. Um, so I get the strangest uh, and shortest opinion of the term, Zubik v. Burwell. Um, you may know this as the Little Sisters of the Poor case. Uh, Little Sisters of the Poor are actually my clients at the Beckett Fund in this case. Um, you may also know it as the contraceptive mandate case. Um, in Zubik v. Burwell, uh, I say it was strangest case. The substance is really strange because if you start out with the question, boy, I'd like to get every woman in America contraceptives, um, you wouldn't immediately go to, and therefore I need nuns, right? Um, it's a little bit of a weird line of reasoning to think that you need nuns to give out birth control. Millions, probably billions of people in the world have acquired it and used it with no help at all from nuns. Um, <laughs> And there was just recently a census, a healthcare census that came out a couple days ago saying there's 118 million people in America who are on healthcare provided by the government. 118 million people. Um, so it's a strange case just to start on the substance because it really makes you pause and wonder what the heck do you need the nuns for? Um, if the government wants to give everybody contraceptives, go ahead. You don't need nuns. Um, it was also a strange case in terms of the procedure. Um, if you recall, the case was argued shortly after Justice Scalia's death in March. Um, and shortly after the argument, the justices issued an order that was relatively unprecedented. I think uh, on SCOTUS blog, one of the writers said the closest analog they could find was after the argument in Brown v. Board, when the justices asked for briefing on um, constitutional and historical questions. But uh, about a week after the argument in Zubik, the justices issued an order saying, essentially, hey guys, can't you work this out, right? We read your briefs and it seems like there might actually be a way to solve this, file supplemental briefs as to whether these kinds of solutions would work. And the parties did that. Um, and a few weeks later in mid-May, we got a three-page per curiam opinion um, signed by all the justices um, in which they basically said, 
hey, guys, can't you work this out? Um, they remanded the case to the lower courts. They said, it looks like there's room for agreement here. They said, government, you can't find the nuns because you know they object, so you don't need any special you know, fancy form from them to know that. But go back down and courts of appeal, let them work it out. Um, all of that makes it tempting to look at Zubik v. Burwell as a bit of a bust, right, as a punt or a dodge where the justices didn't really um, move the case forward and get to a resolution or resolve anything. Uh, but I think that's wrong, and I want to spend a few minutes showing you, um, I was going to say in black and white, but it's actually green and white, in green and white, um, why that's wrong. Um, it turns out that what happened at the Supreme Court was really consequential in a few different ways. Um, one, it resulted in some really important changes in the case, uh, chiefly that the court uh, invalidated and uh, vacated circuit court precedents on religious liberty from eight different circuits. Um, it was also really important because of changes in the government's position that they made at the Supreme Court that were really quite opposite how they had presented their case in the lower courts. Um, and ultimately, I think Zubik v. Burwell comes out uh, illustrating some important truths both about religious liberty law and about the proper judicial role in civil rights cases. Um, so let me start with, hey, there we go, okay. Um, I have the right button. Um, let me start with what was the government's winning argument in most of the courts of appeal. When we got to the Supreme Court, the government was, I think, eight and one in the circuit courts. They had almost run the table. The Eighth Circuit got it right. Everybody else was wildly wrong. Um, and the basis on which the government won was their claim that the contraceptives aren't really part of your plan. Right? So at times, they, they resorted to outright mocking the Little Sisters of the Poor. They said in their legal briefs that the sisters were worried about, quote, invisible dragons. Right? It's just not really their sisters, so sign my form. Um, and they won on that claim in most courts in the country up to the Supreme Court. And the claim was that the contraceptives, although it's an automatic thing that comes with your health plan, they're not really part of your health plan at all. They said it's separate from your health plan. It's independent from your health plan. Um, they said that it is not part of the basket of services you have to provide people with in your health plan. So they said, just stop worrying and sign the form. The sister's response to this was, you know, quizzical. They were saying, well, if it has got nothing to do with my health plan, why do you need my signature? Um, government never had an answer for that because, in fact, the government desperately needed their signature, which is why they fought to the Supreme Court several times to get it. Um, this argument that it's not really your plan was wildly successful in the lower courts. And I'll just give you a few quotes. These are not on the screen. Um, and these are not from the government. These are from uh, circuit courts of appeal. So the Fifth Circuit, in saying that there was no religious freedom claim here, said that the contraceptive coverage was provided, quote, separately from the plans. The Sixth Circuit said that the eligible organization's health plan does not host the coverage, right? It's not your plan. The Third Circuit said that the submission of the form has no real effect on the plan participants and beneficiaries. And my favorite, the Seventh Circuit in the Wheaton College case said, they said a few of these, and then they said, maybe I've said too much, which is a little bit funny. They say, actually, there are no efforts for the government to use Wheaton's health plans. So when Wheaton tells us it's being forced to allow use of its health plans to cover emergency contraception, it is wrong. The contraceptives, quote, are not part of the college's health plans. And then my favorite line, but the government isn't using the college's health plans, as we have explained at perhaps excessive length. Well, that was July 2015, and that was before the case got to the Supreme Court. When the case got to the Supreme Court, the government had to admit what was actually the obvious thing if you focused on the details of the ERISA provisions that they were relying on, which is, of course, it's part of the plan, right? That's why you need the nun's signature, because you're using her plan. 
If you weren't using her plan, it would be idiotic to say, I need a signed permission slip from a nun. Makes no sense at all. Um, the government ultimately agrees with me on this at the end of the day. Here's the government in their, one of their briefs in opposition. If the objecting employer has a self-insured plan, which is most, most plans and most ones that were at, at issue in Zubik, the contraceptive coverage provided by its TPA is, as an ERISA matter, quote, part of the same ERISA plan as the coverage provided by the employer. As a result, the coverage provided by the TPA as a formal ERISA matter is part of the same plan as the coverage provided by the employer. So for years, the government got through the lower courts saying, no, nah, it's not in the plan. Don't worry about it. It's separate. It's independent. Um, the lower courts accepted that hook, line, and sinker, um, at times mocking the religious groups for say, thinking something so crazy as the government's using their plan. Um, that was all through about July of 2015. By September of 2015, when they had to speak to the Supreme Court and they knew they'd get more scrutiny, the government had to come clean and admit, yeah, actually, we are using the health plans. Um, they went further, and this explains why they were fighting so hard to get the sister's signature on a special form. The form, which is called Form 700, um, specifically is a plan instrument. It's an instrument under which the health plan is governed. And the nuns said, well, I can't sign a form like that that's going to let my health plan give out contraceptives. Um, now the government acknowledged that the statutory obligation to provide contraceptive coverage falls only on the plan. And it can only achieve its goals in a written plan instrument. And then my favorite, this is in the supplemental briefing, there is no mechanism for requiring TPAs to provide separate contraceptive coverage without a plan instrument. So after years of saying, it's not the plan, it's not the plan, it's not the plan, when they got to the Supreme Court and the real pressure was on, the government ultimately acknowledged the truth, which is, OK, all right, fine, it's actually the plan. The complete opposite of the story that eight courts of appeals bought on the way up. Um, second big change in the government's briefing. Um, the claim by the government was always that this needs to happen on the employer's plan, right? This needs to be through the employer. If it's not through the employer, women are being put to some extra different special bad burden. All right, so their claim was our system works through employer-provided plans, which is obviously contrary to the it's not your plan argument, but just suspend disbelief. Um, many federal judges suspended disbelief at that point. Um, suspend disbelief. They said, first, it's not your plan. And then they said, and it really needs to be on the plan, judge. Um, so they said on the way up, it has to, be, has to be coming from the employer, right? Otherwise, it's too burdensome. But at the Supreme Court, they were forced to answer the question, well, how is it that there's like 100 million people who don't have contraceptives in their plan because they have grandfathered plans? Um, or my favorite, because they're on government plans which don't have full contraceptive coverage. Um, government military plan doesn't have it. Government Medicaid plan doesn't have the full coverage they were insisting the nuns provide. Um, but the, the government was asked, how is it that your interests are being served for that 100 million other people? Um, how could that be? And the government said to the court, um, I'm sorry, I skipped one slide here. Government said to the court that, oh, don't worry about those people. If they don't get contraceptives from their employer, there's lots of other places they can get it. Which, when I read it, I thought, wow, did I write this? Um, <laughs> because it's always been my view, gosh, if you don't get contraceptives from the nuns in America, it's not that hard to get contraceptives. There's government programs. There's the exchanges, right? The government won its cases. They can have their exchanges. There's other family members' plans. There's all sorts of ways you can get, uh, get plans with contraceptives. But, but it wasn't me this time. It was the government, right? If a small employer elects not to provide health coverage, so if you have fewer than 50 employees, you don't have to provide a policy at all. And they're saying if a small employer does that, 
or if a large employer chooses to pay the tax rather than providing coverage. And that's something that they told the little sisters to do. They said, sister, if you don't like it, just cut off the whole plan entirely, let everybody come to the exchanges, and that'll be fine. Right? That was one of the government's arguments. So if those employers don't provide coverage with contraceptives, employees will ordinarily obtain coverage through a family member's employer, through an individual insurance policy purchased on an exchange or directly from an insurer, or through Medicaid or another government program. All of those sources would include contraceptive coverage. Right, so here's the government in its merits brief at the Supreme Court when the real pressure is put on having to acknowledge, well, golly, there are really lots of ways people can get contraceptives, and they don't have to get it from their employer at all. They can get it from a family member's employer. They can go on these beautiful exchanges that we just told you five minutes ago were awesome, right? They can get it from government programs. Lots of ways to get it, and the government says those are all fine. Those are fine for more than 100 million Americans who use them. Totally fine. But the government tried to say, but somehow not good enough for people who work for nuns, right? If you work for nuns, then, then it's got to come from your employer. Um, last big change in the government's positions at the Supreme Court. Um, this is a case that was litigated under a statute called RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. It's the same statute that was at issue at Hobby Lobby that 20 years ago was really, really, really broadly popular on a bipartisan basis, and now is like a dirty word. Um, but RIFRA says that if there's a substantial burden on somebody's religion, you've got to pass strict scrutiny. Um, and RIFRA writes down the details of strict scrutiny and says it's got to be compelling government interest and the least restrictive means. And over the four or five years of the case, the government has repeatedly claimed to courts that this is really the least, least restrictive means I can use. And then five minutes later, when it loses, steps back and says, oh, that wasn't. But this one is. This is the least restrictive means. Then when they lose, again, they step back and they say, oh, I can use a different one, and it works just fine. And they do this over and over again. So they claimed that their original religious employer exemption was the least restrictive means. right? And that's the one, if you recall, the outset of this dispute, um, you could only serve people of your own faith. So if you're like a Catholic soup kitchen and you're willing to give soup to the atheist or the Jew, government would say, no, 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 you can't have religious exemption. Um, you had to only hire people of your own faith or serve people of your own faith and so forth. Government eventually got rid of all those requirements and just you know, narrowed it down to something about your tax filing status. Um, when they did that, they said, oh, this works just as well as the other thing. It's fine, right? So the original least restrictive means, they said, oh, we could change that. Um, in Hobby Lobby, you may recall, they said that the least restrictive means was forcing the employer to pay for it without any accommodation. And then they lost Hobby Lobby, and two months later, they issued a regulation and said, oh, we could do something else, and it'll work just fine. And earlier, when the Little Sisters of the Poor were complaining about having to sign Form 700, they told the Supreme Court that was the least restrictive means. And then when they lost that piece of it, they said, oh, actually, we could do it a different way. Um, so at a certain point, judges should look skeptically at the government when they come in and say, oh, I have now found the least restrictive means. Um, and it happened at the Supreme Court in this case. In their merits brief, the government said that the current version of the quote unquote accommodation, that is the least restrictive means. And then the justices issued the supplemental briefing order in which they basically said, really? You couldn't do anything else? Um, and here's what the government said. But the accommodation for employers with insured plans could be modified to operate in the manner posited by the court's order while still ensuring that the affected women receive contraceptive coverage seamlessly together with the rest of their health coverage. Um, Ultimately, what the government said in that supplemental brief was, yeah, you're right. We didn't use the least restrictive means. We could do something else. Right? Um, after making those three huge concessions, um, it's no surprise that the justices said, hold on. The whole case just changed. Go back down and see if you can work it out. Um, and that's essentially where the case is now, which is it's you know, sitting on hold in many courts of appeal. Um, and the parties are talking to one another, trying to figure out um, what ultimately should be an easy question, which is, 
can the United States government deliver contraceptives to people without involving nuns? Um, let me tell you the, what I think are the two big lessons from Zubik, um, the two big teachings both for religious liberty cases and then for the judicial role in civil rights cases more broadly. First, for religious liberty cases, um, it is often presented as the case that there's some big conflict between religious liberty and other right X, whatever it is. Um, here, it's the right to contraceptives. Um, and the truth of the matter is that when you really push on it, there's no reason you can't both have Catholic nuns being really, really Catholic while they take care of old people and people who want contraceptives using all sorts of contraceptives when they want them, right? Like, we're a big, diverse country. That ain't that hard to do to say we can both have the nuns and let them be Catholic and stay Catholic, and we can have people who want contraceptives get it, right? It's not that hard to do that. The government for years has said, like, well, we got to pick one, and sorry, contraceptives win. Um, but that was absolutely not the case, as the government ultimately admitted when it said we got lots of other ways to do this. Um, so one is when you're told there's some big clash between religious liberty and some other right and you can't possibly have both, um, it's often not true. And it's often, if you're willing to just take a live and let live approach, it's relatively easy to solve. Um, here's the broader point, though. The solutions here only came about because there was real pressure at and from the Supreme Court on the government's claims about how its system operated and about what other alternatives were available. Without that pressure, I don't think the government admits the stuff that they ultimately cop to at the Supreme Court. I don't think they admit it because they'd been on a big winning streak by saying the opposite in the lower courts. It was the presence of real judicial scrutiny and pressure at the Supreme Court that made a difference here and that revealed that there were win-win solutions and that you don't need to crush the little sisters of the poor even if you think birth control is an awesome thing. Um, the failure of the lower courts on the way up to give that kind of real scrutiny, which then resulted in, by the way, in those lower courts adopting positions that the government was going to throw overboard 60 days later, right? I mean, they emphatically adopted positions that the government ran away from rather than defend at the Supreme Court. Um, so when the judges don't do that proper role in a civil rights case, the civil rights laws end up doing no good work, right? And all civil rights laws like RIFRA and other civil rights laws are based on the idea that a majoritarian government will sometimes sacrifice the interests of the minority for what's a popular majoritarian thing. And that's precisely when Article III judges are supposed to have scrutiny and put the government to its test and make them carry their burdens. That didn't really happen in the lower courts, and that's why the Supreme Court was put in the weird position they were um, put in in Zubik. I'll stop there. Thanks very much. Thank you, Mark. Our final speaker will be David A. Hyman. He is the H. Ross and Helen Workman Chair in Law and Professor of Medicine at the University of Illinois, where he directs the Epstein Program in Health Law and Policy. He will be joining the faculty of Georgetown Law in January. Right. Um, he is the author of Medicare, the Cato book, Medicare Meets Mephistopheles in 2006. He's been published widely in student journals and law reviews. Please welcome David. Thank you. So I know this is Constitution Day, and uh, both Elizabeth and Mark have talked about constitutional cases in the Supreme Court. But I don't teach constitutional law. I don't write about it. If I was under oath, I'd tell you that I find most academic scholarship in constitutional law to be a serial round of motivated reasoning, <laughs> backed up by the collective groupthink of our nation's constitutional law professoriate as to what counts as an on-the-wall versus an off-the-wall argument. So I don't think there's much there there. 
Yeah, so if I don't do con law, uh, what do I do and why am I here? On the why am I here, complaints should be delivered to Ilya. Um, on the what do I do, I work on health law and policy issues, uh, and I also do empirical law and economics. Uh, so think of my talk as forget about the Constitution for the next 14 minutes or so. My clock hasn't started, by the way, so I can just keep going. Um, uh, and uh, instead, let's talk about some operational difficulties with PAPACA, the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, also known as the ACA, also known as the Affordable Care Act. The choice of language tells you a lot about the politics of the speaker. Um, I prefer to call it PAPACA, both because it's a horrible acronym, uh, and also because it's the actual name of the statute, irrespective of whether it actually protects patients or makes care affordable. Um, so there's no shortage of operational difficulties uh, with respect to this law. Uh, and I mean, Mark uh, nicely referenced the conventional government view, that, which is that we've got these beautiful exchanges that are awesome. Uh, the last year has actually seen lots of uh, evidence that uh, they're not so beautiful and they're not so awesome. Uh, including the failure of a bunch of co-ops and the withdrawal of uh, major insurers from multiple markets. Uh, a recent study concluded uh, that one-third of Americans will have the choice of products from precisely one insurance company in their local exchange, uh, and 55% of Americans will be able to choose from products from two insurers or less. Uh, the risk pool of those that actually enrolled is a lot smaller, a lot older, and a lot sicker than the proponents expected. Uh, and there's serious questions about whether it's sustainable in the long run. Now, for today's talk, I've actually picked uh, two specific issues uh, to talk about. Um, only one of them seems likely to maybe end up at the Supreme Court at some point in the future. Uh, but there's pending litigation on both, and both involve uh, fairly significant questions about separation of powers. So the first issue I'm going to talk about uh, is the risk corridors. And so we're now going to dive deeply into the weeds of uh, PAPACA. The, this is a temporary provision in the statute. It's sort of supposed to run for three years, and it's supposed to help stabilize pricing within the exchange by basically forcing insurers that do better than was expected to send money to insurers that did worse than was expected. And it's a fairly sensible strategy to try and stand up a market where people don't have much experience in pricing. Something similar was used when Medicare Part D the pharmaceutical benefit was set up in the Bush administration, and you can sort of see that its goal is to spread risk, stabilize premiums, and deal with the possibility of cherry picking. Um, and there are two appropriation riders that got passed uh, as a result of uh, Senator Rubio's efforts that prohibit HHS from distributing more than it collects. Uh, so it's supposed to make it budget neutral as opposed, as opposed to giving the government a chunk of money that it can pay out uh, without a specific appropriation. Uh, so what actually happened? Well, the first year of the exchanges, uh, uh, the, the insurers sort of submit, here's how much we think you should owe us based on our performance, and the ones who did better paid in. Uh, so the claims on the fund were $2.9 billion, uh, but only about $360 million was collected. Uh, so there's obviously a significant mismatch. A lot of insurers did much less well than they were expecting to. Uh, and HHS's solution to the problem, consistent with the appropriation riders, uh, was everybody gets about 12.5% of the money they wanted 
that's on the receiving side. Uh, and so that was the 2014 results. For 2015, uh, it's basically pending, but it's quite clear there's not enough money probably to pay the leftover uh, amounts that are owed for 2014, let alone satisfy problems in 2015. Uh, there's been litigation, not surprisingly, right? So you were expecting to get a couple of billion dollars back collectively, and instead you got a couple of hundred million. Uh, and so we see lawsuits uh, being filed in the Court of Federal Claims by insurers, Highmark and Blue Cross, uh, as well as Health Republic, uh, which filed, sought to file a class action. Uh, seeking $5 billion collectively, and that's just for the first year or the first maybe two years uh, of exposure. So lots and lots of potential legal exposure here. Uh, and why is this an interesting problem? Uh, it's because if the plaintiffs prevail, they would get paid out of the judgment fund, which is a permanent appropriation. Uh, and the question is, can the litigants with the cooperation slash collusion, depending on your point of view, of the Department of Justice and the administration make an end run around the limitation on appropriation of funds. So the DOJ position, at least their initial position, has been we agree that we owe you money, uh, but let's wait until 2017 when all of this will be sorted out. Maybe we'll make enough money back uh, in 2016 uh, to be able to pay you. Uh, but their subsequent position is one that's probably familiar to many in the audience with regard to environmental litigation, which is, you sue us, we'll settle on terms that we like, and as to what Congress wanted to do, well, tough. Okay? Uh, and so, uh, basically last week, uh, CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, uh, issued this uh, bulletin about the risk corridor payments, and it's a a several-page memo, but the key language is on the last page. Uh, we know that a number of issuers have sued in federal court seeking to obtain the risk corridor amounts that have not been paid. As in any lawsuit, the Department of Justice is vigorously defending these claims. However, as in all cases where there is litigation risk, we are open to discussing resolution of those claims. We are willing to begin such discussions at any time. So everybody should go, oh, I feel so much better now that the Department of Justice can collude with people who are suing the government to extract funds that Congress didn't think ought to be paid uh, except with a specific appropriation. So that's pending in the lower courts. Um, that is in the scheme of thing, and in the Washington scheme of thing, only a couple of billion dollars, right? So it's sort of small potatoes. There's much bigger money. Uh, in the cost-sharing subsidies, which are intended as part of uh, their companion provision, which involves tax credits, to make insurance more affordable for people who are enrolling in the exchanges who are below a certain income level. Uh, and so the cost of coverage for people who enroll in the exchanges can be subsidized, uh, often to a very significant degree, uh, through these two provisions, the tax credits, which are in Section 1401, uh, and the cost-sharing subsidies, which are in 1402. And I've put down for those of you who've forgotten or don't have your pocket version of the uh, Cato Constitution, the appropriation language that basically says, don't spend any money unless Congress agrees and expressly authorizes it. And there's a lot of precedent about what counts as an express appropriation. The tax credits under 1401 uh, are fully funded on a continuing basis. You don't need an appropriation to do that. Uh, but there's nothing explicit in the provisions relating to cost-sharing subsidies that 
parallel that, that involve an appropriation. Uh, and HHS uh, slash OMB, consistent with that understanding, submitted an appropriation request, but it didn't get funded. Okay? And so far, okay, that's just the way things work, but we ended up with litigation in House v. Burwell, a case that Elizabeth was involved in formulating uh, initially. Uh, and the, the case itself involved sort of two claims, uh, one about the employer mandate and the delay in implementation of it, but for our purposes today, I'm just going to focus on the cost-sharing payments. And the issue was, can HHS slash CMS move money around and use, uh, uh, basically pay out cost-sharing payments to insurers to make coverage more affordable in the absence of an explicit authorization? Okay, and so we have uh, litigation in the D.C. Circuit Court, I'm sorry, District Court, uh, initially on standing uh, uh, back in September of 15, and then relatively recently uh, an opinion on the merits of cost-sharing payment. The government won on the standing issue with regard to employer mandate, but lost on the cost-sharing payments, and then we have a decision on the merits that basically says very clearly uh, you haven't made very good arguments why there is an appropriation. If you look at the statute, it's clear there's not an appropriation. Oh, a century or so of precedent requires there to be an appropriation. And so paying out this money in the absence of an appropriation is a violation of the appropriation clause. So where do we go from here after that opinion? Well, the first place we probably go is to the Court of Appeals, uh, where the government is going to try and defend on standing grounds because if you can win on that, you're obviously better off than trying to defend on the merits, and it remains to be seen what will happen with regard to that. Uh, sort of question mark uh, as to whether this case is ultimately headed to the Supreme Court or not. Uh, it's going to depend on the configuration of, uh, for example, the House of Representatives, uh, for starters, as well as the precise nature of what subsequent changes we see in PAPACA. Uh, but the interesting question, and the reason why I decided to include it here, is whether this is susceptible, when push comes to shove, to the exact same litigation strategy that we saw with regard to the uh, risk corridor dispute. Uh, that is, Congress refuses to appropriate the money, and this is real money. This is not the sort of rounding error money in the risk corridors. This is a huge amount of money, even by Washington standards. And then... HHS says to insurance companies, well, just sue us. We'll throw the case, and then we'll satisfy it out of the judgment fund, even though Congress explicitly failed to provide an appropriation. Um, and so that, I think, raises some interesting, not just appropriation clause issues, but separation of powers issues, right? The executive is circumventing uh, constitutional provision intended to protect uh, the power of the purse. Um, and then I put last the possibility of a congressional fix because, of course, this is dead easy to fix if people actually agree that they want to fix it and they agree on other provisions in the statute that they like to address, right? That's actually how things work uh, or are supposed to work. Um, and, but I put it last for a good reason. Um, so let me close with some sort of lessons for implementation issues. Um, 
you know, so far we've just sort of talked about this sort of specific narrow issue in the legislation, but I think it raises larger questions about implementation of statutes and the power of the respective branches. Um, Daniel Patrick Moynihan uh, was a longtime Democratic senator from New York. Uh, he also served in Republican administrations as the Assistant Secretary of Labor, Ambassador to India, and Ambassador to the UN. In the American Academy Almanac of Politics, he was described as, quote, the nation's best thinker among politicians since Lincoln and its best politician among thinkers since Jefferson. As this slide reflects, uh, David Gergen asked him about the preconditions to passing major social reform legislation in the United States. And his response was that there were two essential preconditions. First, you need significant bipartisan support from both sides of the aisle. Otherwise, there'll always be trouble with the legislation and it will be difficult to fix. Second, he said you need solid support from the public before it's passed. Well, neither of these preconditions apply to PAPACA. The only thing bipartisan about the legislation was the opposition to it. And polling on PAPACA suggests that the public is, shall we say, unenthusiastic about this law even six years after its passage. So why do I close with this slide? Well, implementation is a multi-year process that involves both law and politics. It is best thought of as a continuation of the battles that led to the statute in the first place. Both of these problems, as I just said, could easily be taken up addressed and addressed in the ordinary course of business if PAPACA employed, or I'm sorry, enjoyed broad bipartisan and public support. That would involve some give and take using the framework specified in the Constitution. So note, I did get the Constitution into my talk. Um, but the once and done assumption that the people who enacted the legislation shared that all they'd have to do is pass the bill and that was the hard part was just mistaken, both as a historical matter and as a question of sort of positive political theory. Now, it's very common to dismiss the post-enactment fights over this legislation as obstructionism and sour grapes and a lack of compassion for the poor and the uninsured. Now, I don't want to exclude those possibilities, but there are lots of good reasons for continuing fighting about this legislation after it's enacted. And an easy way to see this, as I tell my students, is to imagine the counterfactual. Just flip the political parties, flip the political valence, and ask whether things would look the same or look different. So assume for the sake of argument that the Republicans control Congress and the presidency, and they pass a very aggressive school choice bill with serious federal money in the form of vouchers and tax credits attached to it. They then lose their majority in Congress to the Democrats. Does anybody doubt that the Democrats in Congress and their political allies would do everything in their power to limit and sabotage the legislation, including appropriation riders, lawsuits, oversight hearings, refusing to fix problems with the legislation unless everything is on the table, and trumpeting whatever bad news emerges? And does anybody doubt that the Republican president would play defense to try and use his executive authority to ensure his signature legislation is implemented in the way he wants it? That's just how the game is played. It doesn't mean one side wants poor people to die or the other side wants kids not to be educated. It means that you disagree on how health care and education should be delivered and financed and the role of government, federal, state, and local in doing those things. And so let me close with the words of James Q. Wilson on exactly this point. 
Policymaking in Europe is like a prize fight. Two contenders, having earned the right to enter the ring, square off against each other for a prescribed number of rounds. When one fighter knocks the other one out, he is declared the winner and the fight is over. Policymaking in the United States is more like a barroom brawl. Anybody can join in. The combatants fight all comers and sometimes change sides. No referee is in charge, and the fight lasts not for a fixed number of rounds, but indefinitely, or until everybody drops from exhaustion. <laughs> to repeat former Secretary of State George Shultz's remark, quote, it's never over. You might prefer prize fights, but that's not the system the Constitution gave us. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, David. Somewhat terrifying and depressing, but very illuminating. Um, <laughs> I'm going to open it up for questions. Uh, I believe in anonymous speech at Cato here, so you can use your name or you can use uh, Publius if you'd like. You can't take Cato. That would, uh, that's already taken. Uh, federal farmers are a personal favorite of mine. Uh, Ilya Soman here. You haven't given me the chance to call myself Publius. That's, that's true. I did, yeah. <laughs> Nonetheless, I will ask a question primarily directed at Elizabeth, though others can join in if they want, and that is, uh, I largely agree with you to sort of the tiers of scrutiny, or to put it mildly, not being rigorously followed by the Supreme Court in a consistent way. What do you think this, the solution is to this problem? Like some scholars say we should abolish the tiers of scrutiny entirely and just junk the whole system because it's unworkable. Others might say you should just be really strict about following strict scrutiny, intermediate scrutiny, and so forth, and the system is workable. You just have to try to do it in a sort of consistent way. Is there one of those two approaches that you like, or is there some other third option? Abolish it in some areas, keep it in others, perhaps. Uh, what, what would you want the court to do? Uh, well, uh, that's a, it's a great question. Um, I mean, if, it, if I'm, I get to pick my utopian version of the world, uh, I'm more a uh, uh, Randy Barnett uh, disciple than anything else. I do believe that there should generally be a presumption of unconstitutionality, and the burden should be shifted to the government to articulate uh, in, in clearer ways why it does what it does and what, that there's a nexus between its interest and, and the means it's chosen to carry out those interests. Um, but I, I don't realistically think that's going to happen. Uh, but that, that's the way I think it should have been. Um, but in the alternative, I think the, the suggestion that is being made these days, which is, hey, we've already made up these tiers of scrutiny. We've got, what, at least, you know, 60, 70, 80 years of experience in sort of uh, working them out and the details of what kind of interests satisfy the compelling interest standard, what kind of interests are important or significant for intermediate scrutiny, and which ones are just, you know, legitimate interest. And I think that um, we need to stick to that, right? So if we're, if we're going to carry on with those three tiers of scrutiny, I think we need to go back to being consistent in the application of them. And that's better than the chaos, I think, that we have right now. Well, first of all, thank you for tackling a tough subject in such a in professional way. My name is Shaq Publius Hill, <laughs> and I'm just a concerned citizen from Virginia. Uh, real quickly, um, Elizabeth, for you, the, uh, the remedy in the Texas case, uh, they said 30 miles and that it was an undue burden. 
Did they say anything like if it was within 60 miles that would be acceptable or if it was up to the veterinarian standards or a tattoo parlor standards, would that be acceptable? And then, Mark, a quick question for you. If they don't come up with a settlement, then what happens to the Little Sisters issue? Thank you very much. Yeah, I'll, I'll tackle the 30-mile the thing first. Um, the district court made extensive findings of fact on both the admitting privileges and the surgical center um, uh, provision of the law. And when it came to the admitting privileges provision, for example, um, the court said, look, um, we think that the plaintiffs in this, this case, the abortion providers, have put enough evidence before us that this provision combined with the surgical center provision is going to result in the closure of most of, it already had, the court said, resulted in the closure of a majority of the clinics in Texas before the law even took effect. So since this was a post-effect uh, law, uh, lawsuit, as opposed to the first lawsuit, which was a pre enforcement lawsuit. Um, the court made even further findings of fact that the, the, the clinics that had survived were very likely to close. Uh, and so the, the district court looked at that and said, well, um, we think that, you know, we're not going to nitpick on 30 miles versus 40 miles versus 70 miles, but they had all kinds of statistics that the plaintiffs put in the record that not only were a certain number of facilities going to close and it was going to end up being most of them, but that when that happened, the women who lived within a uh, certain driving distance of abortion facilities were going to be this many hundred thousand that were 200 miles away uh, from a facility and, and on and on and on. So they got into some very specific nitty gritty data, but not on the 30 mile thing. Um, but because the district court went to all that trouble to develop the factual record, that's essentially what gave the Supreme Court the green light to uphold everything. How about the health benefits of women just having safety Yeah, the, the, that, was, that was an area where the, the Supreme Court basically just said, we're not even going to consider that. What we're going to do instead is defer to the district court judge. And that's why I think the outcome of Hellerstedt is that uh, whole women's health, whichever way you want to put it, um, is that the district courts have vast power, right? If you get a, if you get the wrong draw of a judge at the trial level and you're litigating an abortion case, it's game over because they're going to be presupposed, as Scalia recognized back in Casey, to find the facts in a certain way. And once they find those facts, put them in the record, it's kind of like it's, it's laid in concrete. Uh, and all the appellate courts from there on up are going to defer to that. Uh, real quick, if there's no settlement, theoretically, we go back to court and keep litigating, but then we go back to court and keep litigating with the government having acknowledged that there's other ways to do it and there's lots of other good sources and the unanimous Supreme Court having told them you don't need a special form to know who the sisters are because you can see them in front of them suing you. So, like, theoretically, the government may say, oh, I'd like to go back to the same judges who bought my last argument on the way up and tell them, actually, it's a little bit different. Um, I mean, that, that's theoretically possible. It would take a whole lot of chutzpah for the Supreme Court first. No, I think it would go to the courts of appeal. Um, now, whether they'd remand it back down to the trial courts, I don't know. I mean, it would basically, there'd be a diaspora, right? Zubik is really cases from a bunch of different circuits jammed together. They'd go back down, out down. But again, if you did it, it would be with all the stuff the government said on the table. It's not really clear where they go. Thank you. Other questions? Lyle? Lyle Denniston, formerly of SCOTUS Blog. Um, 
Mark, I wondered why you didn't uh, uh, articulate uh, the reality that now the government has proposed a rulemaking uh, that the responses are due uh, finally by next Tuesday. Um, and that process will work before the cases move forward in the courts of appeals where they're now, as you know, being held in advance. Would you talk a little bit about the sure. government's efforts there and what implications that may have for the underlying controversy? And second, just as a matter of amusement for me, um, were there more uh, plaintiffs in these cases than the Little Sisters? Um, and why didn't the Supreme Court uh, call the case Little Sisters, as you folks passionately wanted it to do? Well, uh, the answer to the second question is simply that um, Zubik got decided first. So it was, Zubik was an earlier cert petition. So <laughs> Certainly would never admit it, sir. No, um, you know, lawyers can't control when courts of appeal rule. So the Third Circuit ruled four months before the 10th. So that's the short answer to that. Um, yeah, the government has put out, they're not a proposed rulemaking. They've put out what they call a request for information, where they've asked everybody to give them information on possible alternative ways that they could deliver contraceptives without using the current existing system. And so they've put that out. They've asked for responses those responses are due early next week. Um, I'm actually happy about that process. I think it's a good thing. Um, as you can tell, I think there's a lot of ways to get this done without involving the religious employers. So I'm all in favor of the government seeking as, many, as much input as it can on that. Um, so I hope they read the letters that they get, and I hope they are serious about finding another way. Uh, time for one more. Uh, Devin over here. So this, uh, my, Devin Watkins from the Kittle Institute. So this uh, strategy of sue and settle, as you were talking about, that exists both in these kind of cases and a lot of the environmental cases. Uh, what would you suggest be done to solve this problem or prevent it from happening in the future? Is there ways to unwind some of these or to challenge some of the settlements that occur or limit the judgment fund in some way or some other way to stop this? Well, the most obvious strategy uh, is to amend the rules with regard to the judgment fund to make payment non-automatic, uh, particularly when it looks like, or at least you have reasonable grounds for worrying about a sue and settle strategy being employed against you. Environmental funds, uh, environmental cases obviously involve a different set of parties uh, and so different dynamics. I'm just talking about the judgment fund cases. Uh, of course, to do that, you have to enact legislation and get it signed. Uh, by the president, and let's just say the interests are not necessarily aligned on the optimal strategy for dealing with these cases. Uh, the second strategy, uh, particularly if it's a House v. Burwell fallout, uh, is for the House to intervene uh, and argue that uh, not only um, shouldn't you do this, you can't do this, um, look at the appropriation clause and the separation of powers arguments, uh, but you have to be a party to the case to raise those things. The problem uh, with collusive arrangements, which this may or may not involve, uh, are that nobody's going to raise that argument. My, I have a follow-up to that, which, which is how bad can this get and how bad do you think this will get? It, let's, uh, let's wait and see what the election returns look <laughs> like uh, because remember what I said is my you know, congressional action could fix this just like it could have fixed the Halbig problem. Um, the NFIB case obviously involves somewhat different dynamics. 
Um, but it, again, it, it, to me at least, it suggests that uh, Moynihan was on to something with suggesting if you're going to make these big changes, you better have some uh, joint commitment to making changes subsequently. And if you jump into the abyss by yourself, don't expect the other team to jump in after you. And with that, I will bring our panel to a close. Please join me in thanking. Thank you.